Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to the book of Titus, please. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it'll be page 998. Titus chapter 2. Uh, you might see a slight difference of one word in your outline um, uh, in, in the bulletin than what's on the, the slide there. I, I changed it at the last minute after Jane had printed the, the bulletins from a gracious education to, I personified it to a gracious educator. So if you see a discrepancy there, it's not Jane's fault, it's my fault. I just want to put that out there. Now last week we looked at Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And and during that sermon we we saw that Paul's main point in chapter 2 has been to instruct Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, on how to teach the Christian life to entire households. And this was part of the overall goal that was set out in chapter 1 verse 5 when Paul says to Titus, there he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, this church was started probably not by Paul, probably as a result of Acts chapter 2, and, uh, but Paul had visited there, most likely after his first imprisonment. That We don't have this recorded in the Scripture, but most, most historians believe that Paul was, had a first imprisonment, was released for a short time, and it was probably during this this travel period of Paul's ministry that he stopped in at, at Crete along with Titus. And instead of Paul staying there to establish the church, he left uh, the young Titus there to be the pastor of that church or to be actually in, in more than just a pastor, almost like a, an apostolic authority, delegated authority that Paul gave them. And so he says you've got you to kind of put what remained into order there. It, and we looked at that a few weeks ago, how it says you've got to make it straight. There was, there was a lot of problems with amongst the Christians there, amongst the, the, the embryonic church that was on this small island there. They were very influenced by culture. There was false teaching that we saw in chapter 1. And one of the things that, that Titus was to do is he was to, to get the church into order. And, and one of the ways was through leadership. And, and then once that was established in chapter 2, what Paul says, he says, here's what you need to do is you need to teach. You need to teach sound what accords with sound doctrine. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and that's in contrast to what was being taught by the false teachers. They were giving empty words, we saw in chapter 1. But hear what he's saying in chapter 2. He says there's this whole household. You need to teach them so that the Christian life needs to be lived by every member of, of, of the household, whatever category you're in. And he starts with older men, and he says, says you, need, you need to teach them how to live. And, and older women, and, and younger women, and, and younger men, and, and then even, even slaves and servants in the household, there's responsibility to live out the Christian life. This is what we talked about last week. We saw this in chapter 2, and verses 1 through 10. The culture, as we've mentioned, of Crete was one of theological confusion. Paul knew that unhealthy theology always leads to unhealthy lives. And so therefore, in, in this first part of chapter 2, he set out the ideals for Christian living. Now our text this morning of verses 11 through 15 informs us how Christian lives are even possible. Because if, when we looked at the list last week, it, 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 was, it was daunting in so many ways. It was, it was daunting to look at what was required of us. And, and I told you last week that if you're hearing the message of saying, here's the list, go and do better, you've missed it. Because we can't just go and do better. We need divine enablement. And, and that enablement is, is called grace. And so I love this text here that we have before us here, and it's connected to it. The very first word of verse 11 is a connecting word. It connects us to the previous text. So here's what we have here, this, this, this building of, of the thought here. 
Grace is the answer of how Christian life is possible. You and I can only live a life pleasing to God by God's divine and enabling grace. Grace is getting something that we do not deserve. It's, it's something that is, is often been defined as God's unmerited favor. It's a gift that we have no right to, but yet it was given to us. The message of living the Christian lives by God's grace was of utmost importance to Paul here. Look at verse 15. There's a, there's a summary verse here that's been given. And he says this, he says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Four commands given there in rapid fire succession there. He says you need to, to speak these things and exhort and encourage and have authority when you speak. And when people aren't living this way, you need to rebuke them with the authority that I'm giving you. And let no one disregard you. Let no one put you to shame. Let no one say, that's just little Titus talking. Or that's the yes man of Paul talking. He says, let no one disregard you. This is of utmost importance. So we see in verse 15 how important this message is. Well, let's look at this message. Paul was empowering and encouraging Titus to boldly proclaim the importance of Christian living fueled by God's grace. Let's look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, brings salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This, my friends, is the word of the living God. May it speak to us this morning. You know, as we're I was thinking about how to unpack this, this text here. One of the main points that he gives here is in verse 12, and the very first word, this idea of training, the idea of discipline, instruction, teaching, education. This is what he's getting at here. And so it's almost as if Paul personifies grace a little bit and, and calls it a professor of some sorts. Now, all of us have had teachers in our lives. All of us have had educators in our lives, and some of you are educators yourselves. And, and I have uh, had many teachers in, in, in my education background. I, I look back on, on all the different teachers that I've had, and, um, and some stand out more than others. You know, my mom's here today. I, I always say that my mom is still the, the greatest teacher I've ever had because when she was my teacher, um, I was the most... Uh, unruly, if you will, and so the fact that I made it uh, uh, to high school is, is a testimony to her patience and, and grace and creativity, but she's a great teacher, she's a kindergarten teacher, and, and she's just a wonderful teacher, and so I, I lived in, in a home of, of a good teacher, but I've had many other teachers in, 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 in the course of, of, of my, my uh, Bible college years and seminary and in, in the current degree that I'm in right now, I have some teachers that I, I look up to and respect. But you know, grace is one of these professors 
that we never really asked for, but we desperately needed. If you look back on the teachers that you've had, you probably, in the early years, you didn't have any say in who your teacher was. You just showed up to class and your parents enrolled you. Now, as you got into high school, maybe you were able to select your classes and you did it based on your teacher. Maybe in college you could do that. But a lot of times, we got professors that we never even asked for. I remember when uh, the first uh, uh, seminary professors that I had, uh, his name is Gary Yates, uh, uh, down at Liberty, and he's an Old Testament professor, and I knew nothing about him. I just signed up for the class because I needed to take the class for graduation. It was an Old Testament survey class uh, of sorts, and, uh, and so I, I took the class, and he quickly became my favorite uh, professor that I had at Liberty because he had just a, a way of of making the Old Testament come alive and, and teach it in such a way that I never had before. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't ask for him. But I was sure glad that I had him as a professor. Your grace is that way. None of us asked for grace. At least in the beginning. And how do I know that? Because look at verse 11 here. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. The idea of appeared there, it's, it's the idea that it, it just comes onto the scene. It, it's almost like grace surprises us. It's almost like that, that we, we didn't even ask for it, but, but God in His mercy and God in His graciousness, He pours Himself out upon us and He gives us the knowledge of, 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 the, uh, of our need for repentance and, and the message of Jesus Christ. And, and you can think about that for those of you who are believers in Christ, for those of you who are Christ followers, think back right now. Think back how God, He surprised you with grace. We just had a, a, a next steps class, a new members class during the Sunday school hour. And we went around the table and we shared how God has brought us to saving knowledge of Christ. And it was amazing to see how God has used all sorts of different backgrounds and circumstances and things to bring people to himself. And my friends, I'm telling you that God has given grace in a surprising way, in a way that it appears and it, it just kind of burst upon the scene of your life here. The same word of appearing is used in Acts chapter 27 of the idea of, of breaking through darkness. And it was saying that the stars and, and, the, and the sun, this, and it talks about the idea of the, the breaking through darkness there. It's, it's the idea of, of, of uh, almost a, a powerful, surprising work. And if you're a believer in Christ today, it's because God was gracious toward you. And it's because we needed this. We never would have asked for it, but we desperately needed it. One author, he says this about this word, that in Greek literature, this word can function as a technical term to describe a hero or, or a mythical god of breaking into a helpless situation to rescue someone from danger. That's exactly what God's grace did for you and for me. Maybe it was your parents that told you about Christ. Maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a family member, maybe it was a sibling. I don't know who it was, but somebody told you about Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, somebody right now is telling you about God's saving grace. It's appearing. Grace is something that we desperately need. We may not have asked for, and most likely we didn't but we desperately need it. It's important for us to never forget that we didn't begin to seek God on our own. We were drawn to God by His grace. 
He puts you in that Christian home. He puts you in that situation where someone would tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's almost like God's grace just surprises us one day. Some of you grew up in a home where from you can't remember a time where you didn't know about Jesus Christ. Others of you, you can vividly remember the first time you understood that Jesus Christ was Lord and that you needed Him as a Savior. Either way, grace surprised you that day and it appeared to you. Grace is the professor that we asked when we never asked for, but we desperately needed. Because not only does grace surprise us, it saves us. When grace intruded into our lives, it didn't come empty-handed. It brought salvation. It didn't come with false promises. It didn't come with pie-in-the-sky expectations. What it came with, it came with a saving message of Jesus Christ. And it says that I will save you from your sins. The cool thing is that we didn't even know that we needed salvation at the time, most likely. The first gift of grace is the knowledge that we even need to be saved from our sins. That's the first gift of grace to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. We, ne- we can never get over the fact that grace has intruded into our lives to surprise us and have brought a saving message to us. Please never get over that fact. If you've been a believer for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, whatever it is, never get over the fact that grace has saved you from yourself. You need salvation today just as much as that first day when you prayed and asked God to save you. In Corinthians it says that He's saving us. He's constantly saving us and drawing us closer to Him and making us more like the image of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian life. This is the Christian living that Paul talked about. He said, Titus, teach this. You need to live this way. You need to live out the Christian life. And he's saying the only way you can do this is understand that it's a gracious work of God that surprised you and is saving you. Acts chapter 16. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. See, is it that simple? Yeah. It really is that simple. Believe in Jesus Christ. Follow Him. Understand His Lordship. And you will be saved. But here's the thing. Why do some believe and some don't? There could be a variety of reasons for that. But in the midst of that... And the center is grace. But he's saying, you need this. You need this. So if you see, Jeremy, what's the point of the message this morning? I'll give it to you right now. The point of the message is I hope all of us walk out in awe of God's grace towards us. I hope we walk out just amazed at God's grace. We're, sitting, we're ending our service today with amazing grace. Because we want you to be amazed God's grace. Please don't take this from me. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I look at my own soul and I see that the, the temptation for this to become routine and become old hat and become just part of my DNA that I don't even think about. It's kind of like the fact that I'm Scottish, I think, because my last name is Scott. It must be back there somewhere. I don't think about it. I don't, I don't pick out kilts to wear because I'm, a, I'm aware of this heritage that I have. It's just who I am. Let us never have the fact that we are a son of the king, a child of the king, be old hat to us. 
We would be amazed at God's grace every day. Because here's the thing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. It saves us. But for who? It says for all people there. So that tells me that God's grace is sufficient for us. It is what we need. Here Paul is saying that God's grace is so good, it's so apparent, it is so abundant, that it can literally save every person who will ever be born in this world. Now we know that not every person ever born is going to be saved. We understand that unfortunate fact. But what we're saying here, what we see here, and don't miss this, is that God's grace is so sufficient that it is possible, it would be possible for every person to be saved because his grace is sufficient. It's more than enough for the task. It'd be kind of like this. If, if you were moving and you hire a moving company to come and, and, and load your stuff up, or maybe you rent a U-Haul or whatever it is, and instead of them sending the, the truck or for some of us, the semi, okay, or whatever it is, instead of sending that, they send a fleet of semis. We're talking like 50 that show up on your block and you say, what's with this? And they say, we're here to move you. You say, well, probably just do one truck. (laughs) Well, hey, we want to make sure we've got enough. It's oversufficient for the task. Or it would be like someone coming up to me after the service and saying, hey, I'd like to take you out to lunch. The pause is important. And, 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 and I say, well, look, my parents are with me here, and so, so you know, we're, we're, maybe we'll have to do something different. And then that person says, well, here, let me pay for your lunch to take them out to lunch. And, and they give me a check, or, or they, they give me money, and it's like a thousand bucks. Will this cover lunch? Will it cover lunch? No, my dad and I can eat a lot, but... That more than covers it, right? You get the point here. We can go on and on with illustrations here. God's grace is so sufficient that there's whatever sin you have in your life, whatever, whatever sin that's separating you from God, there is no sin that is so big that God's grace can't cover it. There is no distance that you have ran away from God that God's grace cannot just snatch you back and pull you to himself. God's grace is sufficient for you and for every person in this world. This is the professor that we desperately needed, but yet we didn't even ask for. He says it's, it's sufficient. It's sufficient for, the, for every person here. God has a desire to see people saved. God's grace is sufficient for the entire world. Now the efficiency is only for those who follow Him and believe in Him. We look at that, and we can look at it from John chapter 6, and we can see that those are the ones who God is drawing to Himself. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so while God's grace is sufficient, it will only be applied to those who follow Christ and ask for salvation. We can see that that's God's grace working in their life. God's grace appeared bringing salvation for all people. So grace, it's a professor that we never asked for, but we desperately need. It surprised us, it saved us, it's sufficient for us. 
But you know, as we look at this personification of grace, and we kind of think about grace as a professor or a teacher, we also see, secondly, that grace is the professor with different lesson plans. Now, if you know anything about education, you know that you have to have lesson plans. You have to, you have, to have a plan in place. Uh, I remember uh, one year uh, when I was a youth pastor, the first church I was a youth pastor at, uh, I was a pretty young guy, and we had a small little Christian school there. And the first year I was there, I really didn't have anything to do with the school, except I coached some basketball and things like that. Well, then the second year, I think, uh, I think it was the second year that I was there, um, they asked me to teach the senior high Bible class, since it was a Christian school. And I said, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I like teaching the Bible. I like teens. Works. Good. So what I did was is um, they gave me a curriculum, and so I kind of thumbed through the curriculum. I was like, eh, okay, that's fine, or whatever. And so I just showed up to class and started teaching. Well, the principal of the school one day pulled me aside, and he said, hey, Jeremy, I'd like to see your lesson plans. And I said, um, I was playing teaching the Bible. He said, well, you, you kind of got to have like a, a scope and sequence. And I was like, a, a scope and what? <laughs> like, you, where you going this semester? What, what, what are you trying to accomplish here? And uh, he gave me this, and he said, oh, I gave you a, a lesson planner thing. I said, oh, is that what that was? <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about lesson plans. And so I had to get a crash course on that and how to make those up. You see, grace has, has a scope and sequence. Grace has, has a way of, uh, of teaching us, but it has some things that it wants to teach us that may be different than what we think. First of all, grace teaches us to think differently. It teaches us to think differently. Did you see in the text here when it says, for the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Here's this idea of discipline, this teaching, this instruction, train us to do what? It says renounce. Some translations may say deny. Let's renounce ungodliness here. What he's saying there is this the idea of, of thinking differently because what has appealed to us before no longer appeals to us. Now, I need to stop since we're talking about education here. I need to stop. Now, some of you are looking at that right now and this is like nails on the chalkboard to you. Because you're like saying, okay, different is an adverb. Okay? Okay? So I, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, you know, someone like Abby and Sue here. And it's like, okay, Jeremy, that should be think differently. Right? Okay? Okay. Some of you probably thought about that. Well, okay. Go to the next slide. Okay. Okay. See, Apple, Apple used this and Apple trumps grammar. Okay? Okay. So, so I'm on good ground here. By, by being grammatically incorrect here, okay? So, so this was a tagline of Apple from 1997 to 2003 uh, was this idea of, of think different, okay? And uh, so I'm ripping this off, and uh, if, if Steve Jobs could get away with it, I forgot I could get away with it as well. So, so if, if this, was, this was bothering you, this idea. So we're going to see these things differently several times here. Understand that uh, I, got, I got permission from Apple. So to do this. So this idea of thinking differently. Okay, go ahead on the next slide. This idea of, of renouncing. Hebert says this when, he, when he's defined this. He says this. This is the aorist participle that indicates that grace aims to lead the believer to a place where as a definite act, he will voluntarily make a double renunciation of the past. Translated. Go to the next slide. What does that mean? Grace teaches us to think different. That's what that means. You see, the, the idea is that 
we're renouncing, something that was once appealing to us, something, a, a way of thinking that we would have had, grace begins to unpack that and fold that and change that. God, one of God's gracious gifts to you is that the things that once held your mind in esteem are the things that you once thought were important in life. Over time, as God begins to save you and change you from that life, he says that no longer do those things re- remain the same of importance to you. See, this is God's gracious act. What he does is he saves us. And it's not, you just need to understand this. This is not just something that God says, I want to get you into heaven. That's not enough for God. And what he says is he says, I understand your sinful condition. And what I want you to do is I want you to know, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to change you, make you more like Jesus Christ throughout this entire earth. And so this is for today. This is not for necessarily just for eternity. He says, we're, we're not going to wait till eternity. We're going to start today. And so you're going to begin to see things different. And this is God's grace being poured out upon us. He says, you're going to think differently. You're going to think differently. And so what I want you to do is I want you to look at your life and I want you to see how do you view this world? Uh, where, how do you determine what is most important to you? Well, how do you determine priorities in your life? It ought to have a biblical world, you know, biblical base. Because that's what God's grace says it's going to do. And we know that God never lies. We saw that in chapter 1. We know that God always tells the truth. And so if God's promised that God's grace is going to do this in our life, and it's not happening in our life, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. We go back to God and we say, God, I need the grace to change my thinking. Because even as Christians, sometimes we allow worldly influences and we allow the philosophy of the world to, to shape us and to, to start to, to shape our priorities and our positions and our trajectory of life and what becomes most important to us. And all of a sudden, the things that are so important to us, we begin to realize they're not eternal matters. They're not about God. They're not about my relationship with God. They're more earthbound and earth-centered and, and about this life. And we just need to renounce that. And that's what God's grace is doing teaching us this. It's not instantaneous. It's a process. Some of you have been believers longer than I've been alive. Praise God for that. But you're still in the process. You're still being taught. We never graduate. We just keep going. There's always another degree. There's always another, another education plan to follow. See, God's grace is so good that it teaches us different things. It teaches us to think differently. Grace changes our desires. Our, our desires. Renounce has the idea of disdain or refusal. I illustrate it this way. I, I used to, when I was a youth pastor, I used to crave McDonald's. I don't crave McDonald's anymore. Well, except for the shamrock shake. That stuff's like frozen manna. But other than that, I don't, I don't crave that anymore. At one time I did. I would drive down. I'm like, ooh, McDonald's. Okay. I don't anymore. I've changed. Maybe I've matured. I don't know. The things that I, once I desired, I don't desire anymore. That's grace at work. We struggle with wrong desires. The change is a process, but let me, let me just encourage you to ask God for grace to change your desires. No longer are we satisfied with ungodliness and passions of this world, it says here. We're renouncing that. We're teaching. It's teaching us to say this is empty. This is, this is not satisfying. This is, this is not worth it. The things that brought me pleasure and the things that I thought were most important in my life no longer are so important because I see God changing me and giving me a more eternal perspective. Do you have that? If not, ask God for it. 
Ungodliness is the idea of those external sins that people could see and worldly passions would be more internal or sins that people can't see or maybe even the sins that we would commit if no one would know about it. Those type of things. No longer as Christians should we be satisfied with it. Why? Because of grace. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're wiser or you're better or, or any other reason. It's because of God's grace. If you're a mature Christian here, it's because of God's grace. Understand that. If you have a measure of, of, of closeness to God in your life, understand it's God's grace. And keep begging God for that grace. If you feel distant from God today, the thing you need is not more resolve. The thing you need is not to try harder. The thing you need is not necessarily even an accountability partner to encourage you to get to church or, or whatever the discipline is. What you need is God's grace. And ask God for it. So spend time this afternoon and say, God, I need more grace. I need grace to draw me closer to you and give me the grace to even obey. I need that. But God's grace, Fester, that it has different lesson plans. It also... It teaches us to think differently, but it also teaches us to live different. Paul used three common realms of ethics and Hellenistic culture here for respectable living here. He says this, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. These were three realms in Hellenistic culture that would be considered about where everyone wanted to be respectable in. And this would be like with their self, be respectable to themselves or to their neighbor or to a god. And Paul does this to show that living the Christian life fulfills the base desires of every culture to accept yourself, to be accepted by others, and to be accepted by God. Self-controlled is the idea of our relationship with self and uprightness there is the idea of a relationship with others and, and the idea of, of godly lives is the idea of a relationship with God. So we can say we have an inward relationship, we have an outward relationship, we have an upward relationship. Every relationship that we are part of, it says that God's grace is informing all of those things of how to live those lives. And so it's very practical. So only by God's grace can I be self-controlled, which is a theme we saw last week in verses 1-9 through of chapter 2. This idea of self-controlled, every character, every quality, or every uh, characteristic or category of family there we saw had ideas of self-control. So it's only by God's grace can we be self-controlled. Only by God's grace can I live a life worthy of others' respect. And only by God's grace can I live a life that pleases God. This is Paul's point here. Only by God's grace. Do you see why we need to be amazed at God's grace? Do you see why we need to understand that the life that we live today has to be informed by the grace of God and we need to be thankful for that? Do you see this is the reason why in Psalm 40, what we started the service with this morning, it was Paul, excuse me, David there was just amazed that God had set his feet upon a rock after drawing him out of a miry pit and, and, and uh, the, uh, the pit of destruction there. This is what God has done for us and God's grace has done for us. Please be amazed that never get over that fact. Never get over that fact. Because it's teaching us to live differently and to think differently. The way the word live is written there in the original language, it has the idea, it's, 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 it's called a subjunctive, which is a, a mood of possibility but with probable uh, effects. 
And so this different lesson plan here isn't for another life. It's for this present age. Did you see at the end of verse 12? This present age, in the present age. What Paul is saying to Titus here is he's saying, God's grace affects your life today. Let it, let it change you. Grace teaches us to live differently. So the question is, how has grace changed your view of yourself? What about how has it changed your actions towards others or your position before God? This might be a good homework assignment. Maybe on the top of a page to write, how has grace changed me? How has grace affected me? You start to think about all the different aspects of your life and how God's grace has changed that and informed that. Thirdly, grace teaches us to hope differently. Verse 13, waiting for a blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace, it, it teaches us, and part of the teaching is how to wait. To wait for something and hope. In the English, we, we use the word hope as something that is uncertain, that what we desire to have happen. Here, it's different. It's a, it's a certain event that just hasn't happened yet. That's, that's how this word is understood in this context. So we understand that grace teaches us to wait for something that is certain and we can't wait for it to happen and that we desire something. It used to be when I was younger, I, I used to, you know, I was always taught to pray for you know, Jesus to come back. I grew up in a Christian home and I remember how Revelation ended. John says, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I knew that good Christians wanted that. But I remember being a teenager and thinking, yeah, I got I mean, I want Jesus to come back, but um, there's a there's a few things that I'd like to have happen first. I'd like to get a girlfriend. You know? Or I'd like to have a job, or I'd like to have kids, or, you know, you know there's always these things that, that we would have that we wanted to experience. And so I was like, Jesus, I want you to come back, but, but can you kind of hold off until these things happen? You know how I pray now? Jesus, come back. Come back today. Come back today. Please, there's nothing in this world that can, can bring more satisfaction or joy than you coming back. And I love my family. I love my children. I love my job. I love all those things. But grace has taught me to long for Jesus as well. And so it, it teaches us to hope differently. We have, a, we have a different expectation. We don't cross our fingers or knock on wood wondering if things will get better. We know they will get better when Jesus comes back. Do you long for Jesus' return? I think of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, when Paul, again, he writes to Timothy, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all those who loved His appearing. Jesus is coming back one day. This is the hope that we have, and grace teaches us to anticipate that and to long for that, to realize that then Jesus will get the glory that He deserves. He will get every knee that will bow and every tongue that will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what we're longing for because He deserves it. So what this does is what Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, says, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are in the earth. Grace teaches us to do that. So grace has different lesson plans for us. He teaches us things that we never thought or and obviously you understand personifying grace here, teaches us things that we never thought we would need, and yet we do. But you know, how does grace do this? 
You know, all this stuff here is like, well, he does this, you know, grace does this and teaches us this and all this. But how does, how does this happen? See, the answer is through God's means of grace. And remember the Reviving the Soul series that we just finished a few weeks ago? That's what we were talking about here. This is how God's grace informs us and teaches us things. We talked about things like the Word and prayer and fellowship and the Lord's Supper. We talked about all those things. This is what, why it's so important. It's why it's so important for you to be in the Word. It's why it's so important for you to be praying together. Because it's when we're praying together and you're praying to God that grace changes us and teaches us. It's when we're around the Lord's Supper. This is, this is part of God's plan to teach us His gracious lesson plan. This is when we're, when we're uh, uh, fellowshipping with one another. This is God's plan for us. That's why it's important for you to be with one another and to encourage one another. In the conversations you have, make them go past football or past work or children or doctor's visits or whatever you talk about. Make the conversation start going deeper than that as believers. Because this is how God's grace changes us and teaches us. Well, finally, this morning, grace is a, a professor that not only is one that we didn't ask for, we desperately needed, or it has different lessons plans, but it's, it's, it's a professor that gives some really incredible degrees here. Now, we don't, we don't graduate, we never graduate, but there are benchmarks along the way. And we see this here in the text here, it says, who, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so what we have here is that Paul kind of departs from this a little bit and he says, let me describe to you what the gracious gift of Jesus is. And this is what he's done for us. First of all, grace gives us liberation. It's only by God's grace that this happened. It says he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, all lawlessness. It says there, the idea of redeem there has the idea of liberation or to set free to rescue. Again, it goes back to that mood that I talk, talked about before, that subjunctive mood where it's, it's a possibility, but what, that's probable. It's, 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 it's a certain, almost certain it's going to happen. Now, the thing that we need to understand about this is that what God's grace has done for us in liberating us is that we are not bound to sin anymore. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been liberated from sin. Do you understand that? And how, how important that is? Because in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so at one time in our lives, we were just bound to sin. That's all we could do. But God's grace appears and liberates us. Romans chapter 6, and verse 6, it says this, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sometimes I feel like I'm still enslaved to sin. Sometimes temptation becomes so powerful that I feel like I'm ensnared. But it's in those moments I need to remember that I have the grace of God in my life that I can go to God and say, God, take this from me. God, may I say no to sin's powerful pull in my heart right now. And positionally, we're told that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Because grace has liberated us. It's freed us. No longer are we under the, tyr the, the tyranny of sin 
and of death and of the devil. No longer do we have to do what he says to do. No longer do we have to obey the passions of my soul. No longer, because grace has liberated me. I want you to see this. It says to redeem us from what? All lawlessness. There is no sin too great for grace to overcome. All lawlessness. So whatever sin that you struggle with, whatever sin that seems to beset you or seems to trip you up all the time, or whatever sin that seems to have such a a vice grip on your soul, look at this text right now and see hope and see that God's grace says that one of the works of God's gracious acts of Jesus Christ is that it will liberate us. It liberates us from all lawlessness, every sin that you seem to fall into over and over again, whether it be pride, whether it be pornography, whether it be uh, a boastfulness, whether it be stealing, whether it be uh, lust, whatever the sin that you have right now, and think about it right now, because we all struggle with sin. So right now, think about the sin. Understand that God's grace has liberated us from that. God's grace is amazing. Yet sometimes we just we just willingly go after the sin. We just do it. Ignoring the grace that's here. Ignoring that Jesus is saying, Look, I went to the cross and I died. I, I first I lived a sinless life. I kept the law perfectly because you couldn't. And then I died, and then I rose again. And by doing that, I was able to then take my life of obedience and put it on your account. And I was able to say, I have conquered sin and death. And so therefore, if you believe in me, I will impute that. I will put that on your account. I will say it's credited to you, and so you can live this life. And it's not just for fire insurance so you don't have to go to hell. It's so that you can live the life of Christian obedience that we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And he says, I've done this for you. I've liberated you. Ask me for grace. Come to me and say, give me victory over this. Help me not to do this anymore. But you see, what happens is, is we get into this pattern and then we sin and then we have this guilt and we think, okay, I've got to clean my life up again so that God will accept me again and we try to be really good. And then what happens is we sin again and there's this vicious cycle of guilt over and over again. And if we're sinning, we just need to go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I need your grace. I really believe there are many of us who need to take time this afternoon and just get alone with God and say, God, I need your grace. It's liberated me. I'm going to live like your grace. Not only has it liberated us, but it's it's pure. It's purified us. God gives us purification. It says in the text, and to purify himself for a people. The idea there is to make clean or to literally purge from Evil, again, this mood of possibility and probability. Uncleanliness in this culture was, was a big deal. And, and to the Jewish culture, we understood that in verse 14 of chapter 1, that this was part of the false teaching, that, that they were going back to some of these Jewish customs and, and, these, and, and most likely the cleanliness laws and all those things that went along with that. And so it was a big deal to these people. And what, what Paul is reminding Titus to remind these people here in Crete, he was saying the purification has happened. You don't have to worry about this anymore. People avoided unclean people in this day. They thought that as a clean person touching an unclean person, whether they had leprosy or some other disease, that that would defile them. And there were certain laws that had to be kept. And 
things like that. But Christ, the only clean person ever to walk this earth, touches us unclean people. And we don't make Him unclean. He makes us clean. That's a gracious act. He's purified. Do you see this? Look at the text. Let it speak to you this morning that it's purified for Himself. Live this way. This is who we are in Christ. God's holiness demands purity. And grace makes it so that Christ's holiness, God's holiness, is never compromised. This is what God's grace has done. It's purified us. Grace also gives us adoption. It says, a people for His own possession, part of His family. They're His people. Just stop to think about how amazing it is that you can be called a child of God. You can be part of God's family. Exodus chapter 19, when God was talking to Moses, to Israelites in the Exodus, and He says this, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. If you obey. This is what you have to do. You have to keep my commands. So the point of all this was God knew that they couldn't. Galatians informs us later on that the law was a schoolmaster pointing us to teach us that we could never keep God's commands on our own. And that's why we needed Jesus. So, but back in this time, they didn't know that. They didn't know about Jesus coming. They just knew what Jesus, or excuse me, what God had said is that if you obey, you will be my people. And what was so special about them? Well, later on in Deuteronomy, God answers that question about their specialness. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says this You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set His love upon and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He said the reason why that He brought you from the, the slavery in Egypt and the reason why He brought you out of that and gave you freedom was not because you're special or you're more important than anyone else. It's because I have chosen to love you. And we get to be part of that family. How do I know that Galatians chapter 3 there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, Israel, offspring, heirs according to the promise. We get to be part of the family of God. That's grace at work. We, we don't get to be like the cousins. Or we don't get to like sit at the kid table at Thanksgiving time. We get to sit at the big people table. At Thanksgiving time. We, we get to sit right there with the Father. We're, we're not relegated to the other room. We're, we're not just kind of getting some, some little blessings that are, the, that are left over. We get to sit next to the Father at the table and have the blessings of being in Christ. This is grace. Did you deserve this? Did I deserve this? Absolutely not. But he says, it's not because you're special. 
It's not because you have abilities that I just don't know how to run the universe without. He says, because I love you. And I want to give you that. How amazing is God's grace? I mean, it, it, it liberates us. It brings us liberation. It brings us purification. It brings us adoption. It also gives us motivation. We see this as a people who are what? Zealous for good works. Zealous has the idea of enthusiastic or fervent. One of the benefits of grace is that it motivates us and qualifies us for every good work. Now, this is contrasted to the people in chapter 1, the false prophets who were teaching the, the false things. It says they profess to know God, verse 16 of chapter 1, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They can't even do good works purely because of who they are apart from Christ. And here what he's saying is that these people, that they are zealous for good works because of the grace of God that's changing them. God's grace gives us motivation to live this life. You know, there are days where I just don't feel like continuing on. In all transparency, there are days where I just wonder, is it worth it? I get tired. Sin appeal, appeals to me far more than it should. It's in those moments that I just need to go to my God and say, God, I need motivation. You know what God does in those moments? Because this happens. Just being honest. Verses come to my mind like, don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap if you faint not. Promises of God to sustain me and to carry me through come out of His Word. And this is the reason why we've got to go back to His Word at all times. It's grace that, can t- that keeps me in the fight. Maybe you're here this morning, you're tired. This world has just burdened you. You look and you read the paper and you see just evil all the time. And, and you think, is it worth it? This is where we need to go back to God. You say, God, I need your grace. I need your grace to give me motivation. I need to be zealous for good works because we're told in this text that we are to be devoted to good works. Not to save us. But as an expression of our love for Jesus. As an expression of grace changing us. Devoted to good works. But zealousness, a motivation for that, only comes... By God working in your heart. And so if you're not motivated to obey God, if you're not motivated to do what His commands are, instead of just hanging your head and kind of plodding on and going to work tomorrow, would you get alone with God on your knees and say, would you give me motivation? I need your grace gift of motivation, God. Motivate me to do what is right. We're told that this is part of it. Go to God. Say, God, I need it. I need motivation here. Zealous for good works. Ephesians chapter 2, again, I'll go back to this. Now, this is the third message in a row that I pointed out this text because I think it's that important. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not of works, so no one would boast. Look at verse 10. For years, workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus chapter 3, verse 14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's the purpose. So, people, so God gets the glory. If you know there are things that you should be doing in this Christian life, you know you should be praying together, you know you should be doing things to help others, and you're just tired, and I get that. Go to God and say, God, give me the motivation. I need grace to keep me going. And I, I, I promise you, you will see God answer that. You know, uh, I have a quote in my office. I put a picture of it on the screen. If you go into my office, you'll see that on there. The wall. I put things in my office very intentionally so I see them. I've showed you pictures before of a Greek phrase I have on the one side where I'm studying. And then when I'm working on my computer and if I'm turned at the desk the other way and I'm reading, this one is right up in my eyesight. And the reason why I have it specifically positioned there. So that when I'm reading and when I'm studying and I'm tired and I'm planning and I don't feel like going on, I look up at that. Because Robert Murray Machane wrote this and he said this, it's a sure mark of grace to desire more. Meaning that you have experienced grace, you understand grace when you know you need it more. And I'm reminded every day to ask God for more grace. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, but He gives more grace. You may be tired in this life. You may be weary. You may feel like you can't continue on. You may not have the motivation. Understand this about God's grace. It's not a finite amount that God's given you and it's manage it well and do your best. And when it's gone, it's gone. He says, I've got more. I've got more. Ask God for grace. So if you don't have the grace that we've talked about here, just ask God for it. Can I challenge us to spend time today asking for God's grace to teach us what it needs to teach us based on this? God's grace truly is amazing. Let's pray. Father, We've taken plenty of time this morning to look at this idea of grace. I pray that the text, the thrust of this text will be used by Your Spirit to inform us. Father, we need to continue on in this life. We need to live this life how You have told us to. You have given us very clear instruction on that. But Father, I stand in front of all these people and I say on all of our behalf to You that we cannot do it. We will fail every time unless You enable us. And so I'm pleading for my own soul right now and I'm pleading for my brothers and sisters here with me in this room. Father, please give us grace to follow You. Give us the motivation to continue on. Help us to remember that we are no longer slaves to sin, and that we are free to follow You by Your grace. No doubt. Recently, we have taken Your grace for granted. Forgive us for that. And give us more grace. We pray. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who made all this possible. Without Jesus Christ... Father, I could not even speak to You in this moment. For me to even fathom talking to You without Jesus, 
wrong. So it's the name of Jesus whom we are so grateful for, our elder brother, our high priest, the one who is greater than everything. It's in His name that I plead for grace. His name I pray.